maybe to sort of like back up slightly, I think this is a good good uh, point to bring up something, um, maybe a little bit of a quibble with the whole positive negative liberty distinction. Um, you know the the uh, the. It, it seems clear to me that that the the sort of the positive versus negative liberty, like like that that is sort of emerges out of the liberal conception of the economy as you know the self-regulating market that the economy is a sort of freestanding institution and so therefore that is totally natural and normalized and um doesn't have anything to do with the state and therefore um you know negative liberty is just not is is not interfering with that natural self-regulating process uh and so therefore that you know the only thing the state can do with the economy is to take away that natural like free exercise of choice and and markets and whatever um but what what the you know, this is a, a false notion, right? The economy is largely created by the state. Markets are created by the state. Property is a state creation. Um, and I think maybe an interesting <clears throat> an interesting thing to bring in is sort of like the idea of consent. Because in my view, at bottom, there is always like a very great degree of coercion that's going, that's happening, you know, like, like people's negative liberty is being infringed all the time. Uh, you're forced to do all kinds of crap. Um, you know, from going to get a job in a capitalist system to paying your taxes to, um, you know, not crossing the street when the lights against you and, and on and on what side of the road do you drive on? Um, and I think the really key, uh, thing f- from our sort of lefting perspective is is consent. It's it's how you allocate that coercion, whether it's through a democratic process where everyone gets a say, and then you have certain sort of civil liberties protections on top of that, so de- designating certain sorts of things as sort of like t- categorically illegitimate, um, and. Therefore, that, you know, that whatever coercion is happening, it's a result of a sort of collective process and a collective agreement and 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 so on. And that sort of, you know, the hegemonic thing, it's like that, you know, the 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 freedom that's coming at the, you know, the for, for the freedom to own other people, you know, is clearly just an enormous vi- violation of, you know, nobody consents to being a slave. Um you know, in that sense, or their own descendants being slaves, right? And, uh, you know, that, that I, I'd always just like to break, you know, break out of, out of that sort of libertarian jujitsu, you know, and try and trying to think of the economy as, you know, this, this freestanding institution, and to recognize that, you know, the, I mean, the, the problem is scarcity. There never is enough resources for everyone to have everything they want all the time. And so you sort of have to decide where their things are going to go. And so, you know, that means property, that means taxation and so on. Um, but I think that, you know, consent is the real, you know, the way that that can be dealt with in a productive way. At least that's my view. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the big 
uh, distinction, right? You know, with, with capitalism, we have control of our economy and answering that question of scarcity. What are we going to produce and not produce with our scarce resources? The market economy that lies in the hands of business and supposedly in consumers, if they have lots of options, as we see in the book and all of the markets around us, like we often get big old monopolies or oligopolies with just a couple of firms and very limited choices on our part. And this includes all of our modern tech platforms on down the line economically uh, and that monopolization or oligopolization really takes our consent out of the economic process. But that's the whole idea, right? With socialism or some version of that idea. And obviously that's a lot of different schools of thought that go into that flag. And that's, that's the reality. But the idea there is there's some form of popular decision-making, right? Some economic democracy, the classic idea was worker control of the means of production. Like, worker control of the economy, basically. So when you go to work, you have all the information that management keeps for itself. You talk to your coworkers about what you want to produce and how you want to do it. And you send representatives to talk to related businesses and use those principles of free association to try to experiment and find different ways of organizing production. But because there it's all based on, yeah, that you know, more of a worker sovereignty picture. And usually especially with the modern ideas about socialism, people want to have some formal political process too, where we have the ability to choose on a mass or basis, what, you know, on a greater basis, uh, you know, what economic plan is chosen out of the options that the planners have come up with and stuff. But that puts that consent issue yeah, back into a sort of democratic or a republic framework where we are supposed to have some sort of influence over the course of these events. I mean, my God, look at our economic our great economic trends in the last 20, 30 years. Like, what about this comes from the public will, you know, charging people the kingdom come for their school and for their health care and making the cities completely unaffordable to live in, shipping out decent blue collar jobs to foreign hell holes so that we can make things more cheaply. All these things are just insanely unpopular because, yeah, it's capitalism, though. No one gives a shit about what's popular. There's a couple of firms buy a product. You probably aren't going to hear about where it comes from because they pour money into ads and PR to steer you away from thinking about and engaging with these issues in the first place. Uh, again, again, this all just speaks to the power that the industries have and how they violate our freedom. But I think that's absolutely right. Like that basic scarcity relationship. Like, I mean, that is the source of all of our economic institutions, like you said, from property relations like we have now towards some way we might run them and perhaps socialist future. And that's true too. Like the very, your very first comment there that, so much about the market economy, which conservative you know, writers and figures have, I don't know why, they're so intent on insisting that's the natural order, that's the way things work, mm. any other process or structure is unnatural. So goofy, I mean, for a bunch of reasons, but the best reason, I think, is what you said, like, the state creates most of the conditions for markets to operate from basic public order to, very importantly, having court and legal systems to enforce business contracts people don't realize what a incredibly foundational thing that that is to have any kind of large-scale economy but certainly a capitalist one where it's all about companies having the confidence to invest and if they sign big contracts with the steel companies so they can put up a building the company will actually deliver the steel on time and at the specified quality levels and if they don't they can take it to court without that who's going to make an investment it's risky enough already you know so that's a really important point that's something that is really annoying too yeah when people claim oh that's the natural system government's an intrusion takes away our freedom yeah, it's a, capitalism is a power riddled system that relies on the state 
at 30 different budget lines to create right. a foundation. I mean, I think that's, I totally agree with <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why capitalism is so pernicious on the ideological level, right? Because it tries to pretend that it's, it's the only naturalized system and, and that therefore anything that challenges it is what is being chosen to, to challenge that, that the status quo and is the threat and, and is that where, you know, which is threatening your freedom from the government's getting involved, big government. Um, but unmasking the way that the government and the state and basically how Karl Polanyi showed that, uh, it's actually what's spontaneous is the reaction to the devastation, right? Of the planned capitalist political economy. Um, that is something that can help people realize, uh, as I think is, com- you know, whether it's in the misguided election of Trump or in the rise of, you know, democratic socialists, uh, there seems to be some insight into the failures and perhaps not so natural disasters caused by neoliberalism. Um, and so maybe this is a good time a- a- as much as we could, we could keep diving into the takedowns, which I, I always love of Friedman and Hayek. Um, but maybe we should talk a bit about the the kind of options on offer for the left to reappropriate freedom uh, that is tied to the common good, that is tied to um, all the things that neoliberalism tries to subvert. So, you know, I think you, you frame it in a few ways. I think you, you label one vision at, at, that you have as libertarian socialism, which is interesting given the takedown of libertarianism. Uh, so we could talk about that and and the kind of the non-statist way that that form of, of socialism um, kind of supports us operating. Uh, but also, I really liked the fact that you talk about the need to experiment and to, to have a little humility about the fact that we can't know in advance too much about the way to to truly be free because we've lived so much under the oppression of these other systems, right? And, and so maybe we can start talking about your vision for the solution. That's great. Yeah. Thanks, Matt, for sure. Uh, yeah, you know, so uh, like a lot of people these days, I'm looking more favorably on non-capitalist ways of organizing our system at the broadest level. And yeah, like right now, it's a real uh, socialist moment. And you don't have a ton of those uh, historically, so that's kind of exciting. But of course, there's a ton of confusion. This has come up a bunch in the campaign already among Sanders and AOC and other figures nationally using the word socialism and talking about what it is and isn't. And Sanders has mud. I'm a huge fan of Bernie Sanders, but he's uh, muddied the waters a little bit more about what socialism is, but mostly in the way that favors the use of the term. So maybe it's all for the best. But when he uses it, he means social democracy in Europe, right? Usually something, an expansion of the New Deal policies we used to have. We still have private ownership of most property, uh, but we're going to tax the rich, which will come up with revenue for public health care and reduce their power levels by taxing them, which is important. and take all these other steps. I think all this stuff is fantastic. I'm in favor of modest moves uh, in the near term, especially stuff like like universal health care, because that makes such a huge difference in the lives of working people. I wish right. I had it just for myself to benefit from it, you know? Yeah, so, yeah same. Yeah, it, it, it comes from the heart. So there's that. But then looking a little bit beyond that, like more, tra- you know, like you're more, you have a couple different schools of traditional ideas about what socialism is. Like democratic socialism or social democracy usually means some version of reforming capitalism with taxes and public programs and regulation. And that you know, there's a lot to be accomplished there. That's a very reasonable goal for improving our lives while we're physically living them. That's nice. When we talk about real socialism, though, we're usually talking about something post-capitalist, right? So your big scale property, big industries, giant 
farm tracts, you know, of giant mines of controlling raw materials or the huge server farms of today that store all of our data and let us watch stupid YouTube videos with about cats (laughs) with low latency. Very important, all equally important industries. But uh, what they do is they give their owners a lot of power if they decide to make a big dramatic change with what they're going to do in their industries. It affects everybody. So once you get up to a level of property that gives you real power, and it's debatable where that would be in different industries and different countries probably would like to chop it up differently. At that point, we'd say that property should be socialized. There's too much potential power there for one per CEO or one group of investors to control it. So the workers and the community and people with other concerns in it, they'll run it in some form of democratic process with some form of representation and recall of their representatives and so on. That kind of thing for like an actual democratic control of the workplace and federating with other uh, workers and other industries around the economy and around the world. Like that's more of a traditional, you know, real bottom up socialist vision. Libertarian socialism, you know, all these words get abused quite a bit. So there's really aren't that hard of a set of boundary lines between these. That's where we're sort of focusing on perhaps further down the road from that to where we no longer have the need for a giant centralized state in addition to these giant centralized companies we want to get rid of in the nearer term. Because, uh, you know, like you guys brought up before, it's, it's, it's got a, uh, it is the republic for all of our government's problems. And plenty. There's so much coercive power, especially in big, powerful countries like the United States. Uh, it is a republic. We have some veto power and some real control over what the state does. And if you're a more active, more organized polity, like, say, in France... If there's a really unpopular regressive policy that comes through, like taxing gasoline, very regressive tax on poor and working people, the population rises up on a somewhat organized basis, organized enough to shut down the economy. Like that's how you keep the state at bay while allowing more socialism to happen at the meantime, you know. But I think that last thing you referred to, that's something that's really important to me. And that may be because I come out of the sciences. My background actually originally was in biology. That's what I did for my first from my undergrad years, and then I went on to econ nice, because nice. we all make mistakes in our lives and be <laughs> wrong. So, you know, what can you do? But there, uh, if you're trying to figure out a new system or design any kind of just a simple like way of measuring something scientifically, the whole process, it's just understood that the process is experimental. Okay, well, I have this kind of early idea. So this suggests this method. Okay, that didn't really work out. This tiny piece looks promising. Let's try that in six different ways. That's how you optimize a process or at least make it workable. And we should realize, you know, we don't have a history of a successful developed economy that then went into socialism. You know, we have various third world countries of different types from Russia to China to others that undergo an authoritarian development regime and wave the socialist flag for it and then fail for their own reasons or because the most powerful countries in the West undermine them. It's a mixture in the history. But we don't really have a example of developed economies developing into socialism, which has always been the idea. Socialism would come from the most developed countries first, where people have the literacy and the expectation of civil liberties and you know, and are brought together in big production units and all the reasons that you read about in Marx and stuff, you know. There we don't have it. So we should, the point is, if you're going into unmapped territory, you should have an experimental attitude. What, you're the magic, you know, wizard who knows how we should organize, you know, the tire production industry? What about the airline (laughs) industry? What about the copper industry? What about making those 
servers so we can run map software <laughs> and the cloud. Like, you're not going to have magical clairvoyance powers, even if you're an expert on an industry. And I love industrial analysis. You can learn a lot about how markets work. But it's the people who work in an industry every day. They're the ones who know what really goes on and how it really operates. They're the ones who are in a position to do experiments with their strong familiarity and knowledge. Like that should be, at least in my personal view, like the idea for how we can get to socialism once we create that political and economic space, which probably would mean national political action to give workers some sanction for maybe doing sit-in strikes or however else they try to directly seize the means of production. You do need some kind of enabling law there to make that stable. But with that sort of national thing in the background, the impetus for the development should be at the workforce level and at their own like voluntary organic federation, you know, across production. That would be a I kind of a vague version vision for right. an experimental development of socialism. And we should have a little humility. Like even if you have really important contributions to make, and I'm not trying to say we shouldn't talk about this of course. But just to say in doing so, like it's no one sailed in these seas before if we go down this road. So we should just have that little willingness to doubt our own proposals and be modest. I don't think that's asking too much. Uh, why? As all the wonks, we, all the wonks are taking off their wizard hats. All the wonks in DC are, are kind of had that sad. Oh, I thought I could be the wizard of, of this. Sorry, sorry, Ryan. To, I don't mean to insult uh, the the, uh, the, no, bril- no, the, the the brilliant uh, you know DC wonks, but uh, yeah, they can't be the wizards. It's unfortunate. Well, I don't live in DC anymore, so you know um, that's. <laughs> um, but. Oh, I was going to say, you know, there there is an example that that I think is somewhat instructive. You know, so you have the Nordic model of you know cl- classic social democracy, various you know very 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 generous welfare state, but there's considerable diversity in the Nordics. Like Sweden is probably the most neoliberalized, Denmark somewhat to a lesser extent, but uh, Norway uh, has. They really have socialized great swaths of of wealth, right? So the Norwegian state owns sixty uh, percent of all the wealth in Norway, and if you exclude owner occupied homes, they own seventy five percent of the wealth. Um, and the the state owns about forty percent of all the stocks traded on the Norwegian stock exchange, um, and. They've built up this gigantic social wealth fund, which uh, mainly just sitting on it for now, but uh, it owns like 1.3 something percent of all the equities in the world. And that's kind of a a peculiar uh, result of their their own political development and also the fact that they struck oil big time in the North Sea and they they used that money they they did the smart thing don't do Venezuela don't do don't do Alaska where you're using your oil rents to fund current spending bad 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 never do that um, because then you're very highly vulnerable to a, a, a price collapse which is exactly why the Alaska is shutting down its university system and a big part of why Venezuela is in such a such a a terrible state in addition to the U.S. sanctions and ma- massive corruption. But, you know, they really have blazed a trail there in Norway. And, uh, you know, I mean, the fact is the U.S. has tons of oil wealth, but it, you don't need oil wealth. You could do the same thing with regular old taxes. You know, you could just uh, you could just buy out businesses or expropriate ones that are really socially toxic. Um, and that, you know, I'm a, I'm a little... 
I guess I'm a little bit skeptical of the libertarian vision because of that same experimental, you know, notion that, that like, well, here's a really workable uh, example of pretty, I mean, I'd say it's pretty inarguable that Norway is the most socialist country that has ever existed. And it's pretty sweet. You know, they're, they're usually them and them and Finland are usually number one and two in the world's happiest countries survey that they do. And, um, there are also dark as hell most of the time. So considering seasonal affective disorder, that's even more impressive. And and cold. It's like seven feet of snow, eight months a year. Um, so you know that's a it's a pretty impressive example. I think there's a lot to learn from them. You know, maybe not. You know, it's clearly not a perfect one to one correspondence with the U.S. in a lot of ways. But um, you know, uh, I think that that's a pretty uh, relevant th- place we could we could learn a lot from. Oh, absolutely, Matt. I mean, I think many people on the left for a lot of years we've used we've fought conservatives by bashing them in the head with successful, stable, happy, growing egalitarian Scandinavia, and they've got it coming, and we should continue to do that. I'm all. I think that's completely right. Uh, and it's interesting, yeah, watching reaction in Sweden, like that's been very painful. But you're compl- that's you're right though, as far as like social democracy, Norway is going strong. Uh, but it's interesting. I mean, like you know, like you said, like the reason Norway, you know, it has this whole history, but its whole modern period uh, with social democracy, like you said, is completely fun- uh, funded by that gigantic uh, North Sea uh, set of oil assets there. Even with the lower prices that prevail in today's fracking era uh, in the commodity markets, it's still been a gigantic bonanza for the very modest number of people who actually live in that country if you look at it it's yeah it's five, five million. yeah so it's the point is like it's like I, I, w- I would agree that they've been able to achieve a huge amount and i think we should be holding that example up to every conservative until they realize how lame they are on the other hand yeah we should realize it does come from doing at least as much as the rest of the world in dooming civilization by burning fossil fuels. Like it, it is a whole engine that's funded on, and like you said, like they're investing it mostly, you know, rather than consuming it, which is always the sensible investment advice. And, you know, countries have acute needs. They maybe have people who are starving of serious diseases. It's understandable if some of that money is put into social supports. The goal is, yeah, to invest the balance of it. So it grows and makes stable income flows over time. Uh, including in the future when, God willing, we won't be burning uh, so many motor fuels and oil using it for other purposes like plastic feedstock. So that's a good point, just that, yeah, Norway's, the climate ramifications kind of undermine the specific Norway model. I agree that doesn't mess with its actual policy points. But the big thing I always point out there, too, is, uh, you know, that's fantastic, like the government owning 40% of the traded stocks and over half of the broader social wealth and far more if we exclude, yeah, just the simple housing stock. But of course, too, I mean, just along with that, we should remember, of course, government ownership isn't itself quite socialism. You know, many, even very well-run, you know, constructive public entities are quite authoritarian and have super rigid hierarchical structures everyone's completely expected to follow along with. So I always, I always think there is some value to doing that distinction between nationalizing and socializing. And of course, they totally can and should go together, government expropriates an industry and the workers or you know bodies of the workers in some form or groups of them get put in charge of the property separate itself from just nationalization you know where the uk government takes over an unprofitable segment of the economy to keep it alive or like the american you know, like amtrak is the classic example there 
the rail operate, operator oligopolies didn't want to keep serving, you know, to keep providing passenger service. And so to keep it in existence at all, the government steps in and does it. But it's not quite Amtrak. You talk to the porters and the clerks and the uh, you know conductors on Amtrak. They are not making the decisions about what happens on the railroad. Too. That's right. That's, that is fantastic, though. I mean, that's a great point. That Scandinavian model, though, huge, hugely valuable lessons there. I could not possibly. 